Payment models are a hot topic for discussion, debate, and development in the healthcare industry today. From consulting firms to associations and other industry influencers, various models are proposed, but they're not always designed with financial sustainability of rural hospitals in mind. So, how do we differentiate between payment models that could actually work versus rhetoric that won't? With straightforward conversation, quality research, and a focus on the realities of rural healthcare. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm JJ Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to episode 97 of Rural Health Rising. I'm JJ Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. So, Rachel, we know that payment models are the talk of town, right? Yeah. Uh, we talk about them. Uh, obviously, the federal government talks about it, the state government talks about it. Uh, maybe not in the manner in which we want them to talk <laughs> about it, but they do talk about it, so to speak. Um, and it is discussed among health uh, care circles today. And a lot of discussion occurs uh, here at Michigan Health and Hospital Association, as well as other organizations throughout mm-hmm, the country mm-hmm. uh, as we discuss this. And there are many um, models that have been proposed and are being proposed right now. Uh, and many of them are either confusing or downright right non when we look at when we look at situations where we're trying to fund healthcare in rural communities high population medicaid medicare and then we have experts right mm-hmm. well, Right. In right. Washington or Lansing or, telling or, us. Or in all other manner of places. In all manner of places. Telling us how we could best get paid. Yeah. And and I would use the word nonsensical. Yes. You know, in 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 nature, um, as how they feel it should be applied to rural health. But we live it every day and right. it is a significant challenge. Yes, and today we're talking with a return guest who digs into payment models on a regular basis, reviewing their structures and viability from a rural perspective. Our guest today is Harold Miller, CEO of the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. Welcome back to Rural Health Rising, Harold. Thanks for inviting me back. It's nice to be here again. So to start, why don't you just remind our listeners, if they have not heard the previous episode you were on, uh, remind them just quickly who you are with a little reintroduction. Well, I run the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. We work on ways to improve healthcare payment systems so they support high quality care for patients at the most affordable cost. Most people don't realize that today hospitals and physicians actually make less money when they deliver higher quality healthcare. And in mm-hmm. some cases, they can't get paid at all for doing things that help patients the most. So we work on trying to fix that. You know, Harold, uh, you certainly put a tremendous amount of effort uh, into this, and we here in rural health are extremely grateful uh, for the work that you have done, oftentimes citing you, uh, as we have since our last uh, podcast, and we'll continue to uh, give you credit for the work that you do and really enlightening our board, our community, and healthcare in general. Mm -hmm. Um, So you were here last time, and we always ask a question. It's called the why. And this allows us to get to know our guests just a little bit better. And we we heard your why the first time. I want our audience, uh, our listeners, to hear what your why is, because it's important. Uh, so what motivates you, Harold? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do on behalf of rural hospitals and healthcare across America? Well, I talk constantly with physicians and rural hospital executives who are very frustrated because they can't afford to deliver the kinds of services that their patients need. And moreover, the administrative requirements involved in getting paid keep increasing. So they have to spend more time on administration and less time on actual patient care. 
that's driving a lot of good physicians out of medicine. It's forcing a lot of small hospitals out of business. The only way we will fix this is if people understand the problems and what needs to be done to solve them. So when I get up every day, I try to do something to help address that. And that's remarkable. So, Harold, we have discussed uh, on our last episode together the true root of the problem uh, for rural hospital viability, which is reimbursement. And um, so discussing payment model, you know, obviously is essential uh, to solving that problem. But a lot of what we read and hear about uh, that is new and innovative payment models seems to really be out of touch with the realities of rural healthcare as we deliver each and every day. So what are you seeing in terms of the rhetoric and discussion around various payment models right now? Well, the two concepts that have been getting a lot of attention over the past couple of years are population-based payments and global budgets. The idea of both of them is to stop paying physicians and hospitals fees for individual services and instead give them a fixed payment for each patient or a fixed budget for a group of patients. The payment or the budget is then the same regardless of how many services the patients actually receive. The primary goal of this approach is simple. It's to limit how much money is being spent on healthcare. Uh, proponents of it claim that it will be better for patients because it gives healthcare providers both the flexibility and the incentive to keep their patients healthy. For example, if a physician works harder to keep a patient healthy and the patient goes to the emergency department less often, the physician gets to keep some of the savings from those avoided visits. And under population-based payment, a hospital would actually be more profitable if fewer patients needed emergency department visits or admissions. The mm. problem is that this population-based payment concept also gives providers the flexibility and the incentive to avoid delivering services that their patients actually need. So if a physician prescribes a drug that is less effective in treating a patient's health problems and the drug is less expensive, the physician gets to keep the savings from reducing drug spending. In fact, if the physician doesn't treat the patient at all and the patient dies, the physician still gets paid under a population-based payment system. The yeah. hospital gets paid the same amount whether same. it treats patients in a timely way or makes them wait for services the way they do in many other countries. Now, I, I don't think that most physicians and hospitals would withhold services intentionally in order to make higher profits. Mm -hmm. But if these population-based payments aren't big enough, to pay for the care the patients need, doctors and hospitals could be forced to ration care. Mm. And I think patients should be really worried about a payment system that could force physicians and hospitals to deliver care, less care than patients need. The proponents of this approach focus entirely on the benefits and minimize the risks. And I think the risks are huge. Mm -hmm. Capitation payments were tried for a time back in the 1980s and they disappeared because of the problems that they created. Now they're mm -hmm. back again with a new name, but the problems are really the same. Yeah. Why do you think this has become such a topic of interest for healthcare consulting firms? It seems there's another white paper or a blog post every other day, maybe, uh, about one payment model or another as this, quote, solution to the rural hospital problem. And I would like to point out, we work with a lot of great healthcare consulting firms, yes. and they've done good work for us. Um, but also, there is just a lot of rhetoric out there mm -hmm. from this group in particular, it seems, related to payment models. 
Well, consulting firms make money by consulting. Uh, they can make as <laughs> right. much money telling you that a bad idea is bad as they can tell you by make by telling you a good idea is good. Mm -hmm. The proposals that are being advanced for things like population-based payments and global budgets and rural emergency hospitals, I think, as JJ said, they're incredibly complex. And most physicians and hospitals don't have the vaguest idea what all the jargon mm -hmm. and the rules mean. You almost have so to be if, an actuary to break some of these down and understand <laughs> them. Yeah. So if nothing else, one thing these proposals do is they create a new business opportunity for consulting firms. So, you know, Harold, we talk about these types of payment models. And just for our listeners today, uh, can you tell us about some of these types of models um, that we keep saying these models? Um, you know, I guess my question to you in, in is, are, are any of them plausible? Do you find a golden strand of truth and or feasibility in any of these? Or, you know, I guess from your perspective, why and why not? Well, I'll take as an example, um, the proposal that Medicare has been pushing for rural hospitals is a global budget. And again, the idea is mm -hmm. to give the hospital a fixed amount of money for the year rather than paying it for individual services. And in theory, this is supposed to give the hospital the flexibility and the incentive to use some of that money for prevention activities without worrying about losing money when people need fewer services, mm -hmm. which sounds good. But there are some pretty serious problems with this. One problem is that the hospital still has to deliver services to sick people every day, and it can't just stop doing that and shift money to preventive care. Mm -hmm. Preventive care saves money in the long run, but it tends to increase costs in the short run. A second problem is that things happen that require the hospital to deliver more services or that increase the cost of delivering services. And that's very hard to do when you have a fixed budget. The pandemic was one very good example of this. More people needed hospital care and the cost of supplies and labor increased dramatically. Mm -hmm. But it can also happen with a bad flu season, a hurricane, yeah. an increase in drug prices. Today, mm -hmm. if a hospital has to deliver more services, it can get more revenue to cover the cost. But under a global budget, it can't. So lots of the focus tends to be on the assumption of what, how good it is for the hospital if the hospital can deliver fewer services, and there is not much attention to what happens if cost goes up. And then the third problem is that it's the government or a health plan that decides what the budget is, not the hospital. And so it becomes very easy for the payer to save money by simply cutting the budget, regardless mm -hmm. of whether that budget is enough. And then it's the hospital that has to figure out how to cut services to live within that budget, not mm -hmm. the payer. So many of these ideas start with an element of a good idea, and then people just don't seem to think through all of the problems that arise with them, and they keep promoting them as being better when they're really not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, speaking of, <laughs> they're really not going to support rural hospitals financial sustainability based on you know what you've just outlined and all of these problems and issues why are these payment models continuing to be pushed and why do you think these models in particular are getting the most attention is it is it because of what you said about the the payers are the ones that would still have the control in that situation i mean in the long run if they're not helpful how are they continuing to have traction and momentum in the healthcare industry just in terms of discussion and attention and conversation? And even global budgeting, I mean, that's in practice in some places, even as a pilot in states like Pennsylvania, right. for example. 
Well, it's a good question. Uh, supporters of these problematic models tend to fall into two camps, in my experience. One camp is people who are very concerned about the problems caused by current payment systems, mm-hmm. but who don't really have the ability to evaluate the impacts of proposed changes. So when they hear so-called experts promoting the advantages of population-based payments and global budgets, they tend to assume that they must be better. The other camp, though, are the people and organizations who would benefit from the proposed changes, and that isn't necessarily the rural hospitals. Medicare and other payers love the idea of being able to limit their spending and shift all of their risk to healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. In addition, big health systems know that small providers can't manage the risk and administrative burdens of population-based payment systems. And so if the big systems, even if they would prefer the current payment system, they know that the population-based payment systems would accelerate consolidation in the healthcare industry. Big health systems don't want a payment system to keep small hospitals alive. So it's a real challenge in terms of when you have to understand the motivations of the people behind these. They're not necessarily about trying to help get better care to patients. They're about Mm -hmm. trying to save money and potentially promote some of the interests of the entrenched organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, Harold, um, so let's talk about advocacy. Let's talk about rural health uh, opportunities for executives, leadership, board members to engage in a conversation or in advocacy work that would help support a model that could work. So uh, what what my question to you, you're the you're the expert, you're the guy dealing with this every day working with hospitals like Hillsdale and to be a voice on a national scene when it comes to supporting payment models that could work. Um, how do rural hospitals engage in this? If, if, if one of my counterparts is listening across the country right now, what recommendation would you give them uh, to put a process in place to support those specific models that do work and encourage their adoption? Well, I think rural hospitals have to stop waiting for somebody else to solve the problem for them or to believe that people who really don't have their interests at heart will do it. I think rural Mm -hmm. hospitals have to take charge of developing a solution that will work for them, but they also have to do it in a way that will address the concerns that people have about the current system. Um, I think small rural hospitals have to recognize that their interests are not aligned with those of the bigger hospitals. And so they can't rely on hospital associations to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. Maybe a controversial statement. But, for example, the American (laughs) Hospital Association recently put out a paper that basically said that the way to prevent rural hospital closures is for them to merge with larger hospitals. And I don't think that's the right answer, but it's it's obvious where that's where that's coming from. The new rural emergency hospital classification is bad for rural communities, but it's Mm -hmm. a boon for big hospitals because it means that more patients will have to be transferred to them and more revenue will be coming to the big hospitals. I think when you talk, when I've talked to a lot of small rural hospitals, what they what they say they want um, is a cost based payment system, the way that Medicare uses for critical access hospitals. But it's just not realistic or desirable mm-hmm. to expect that all payers are going to do that. Well, and um, it's not and necessarily yeah. been the savior for critical access hospitals, right? I mean, even with that, there are a lot of critical access hospitals that are not in great shape financially. And so, you know, we've had that conversation too over the years, but when you really look at it, it's not necessarily a fix. It's been around since what, the 90s? And it hasn't really slowed the pace of hospital closures. 
Uh, y- yes, but I think that the issue is that that's what many people would say, rightly so, that that is because it's only Medicare paying that way. And oh, I see. Pay right. that way. And, it um, might be I just more sustainable. Was talking to a, I was talking to a rural hospital executive from um, Arkansas last week, and um, he actually calculated, which I think, and he recommends, and I would recommend that other hospitals do the same thing, calculated what percentage of charges they were receiving from Medicare versus other payers. And what he found is that Medicare Advantage plans were paying him a far smaller percentage of his charges than Medicare was. The commercial payers were paying a small, uh, much smaller percentage of charges than Medicare was. Um, And the the national narrative and the belief is that somehow hospital, all hospitals are being paid exorbitant amounts by commercial insurers and that it's Medicare that's causing the problem. What I've seen in many cases is the exact opposite, is that it's the commercial payers um, that are, and that includes Medicare Advantage plans that are underpaying. I think, moreover, what is very hard to see is that it's not necessarily the amount that's getting paid, it's whether the hospital is getting paid at all and when Mm -hmm. the hospital is getting paid. So big hospital systems have can hire lots of staff to fight prior authorization issues and claims denials and small rural hospitals sometimes just give up and say, you know, we don't we don't have the ability to do that. So I, I think uh, if you say the, the best solution is, is cost-based payment, people are going to simply ignore you. And mm-hmm. then what you end up getting um, is things like global budgets. I think mm-hmm. part of the problem is the proponents of global budgets, many of them believe that there are only two ways to pay rural hospitals. You either pay the current system or you use global budgets. So if you don't like the current payment system, then the only choice is a global budget. I think there is a middle ground that can address the problems in the current system while also preserving its strengths. For example, having a combination of a standby capacity payment and smaller service-based fees would help small rural hospitals sustain their essential services while reducing the problematic incentives that get created by the current payment systems. But we're never going to get a system like that unless rural hospitals start advocating for it and putting together the information to show why it is better than either of the other alternatives that are being proposed. Absolutely. And and I always take Harold's, the, the last podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and I forward it to our congressman yep. uh, and state state house rep and mm-hmm. Senate. And, you know, the, the focus was with Congressman Wahlberg right. of, Tim, we have to have real solutions. You know, mm-hmm. Grassley mm-hmm. introduced, you know, the Rural Hospital Closure Act and all of these things. But there, are, there appears, Rachel, to be no teeth at this point. It's right. just a lot of talk. A lot of discussion while hospitals are are closing their doors. Right. And are floundering if they're not closing, they're just on the brink. And I think what I think I have started to really try to think of it as because, as you know, I like to live and speak and communicate in metaphors because it makes the most sense to me. Um, But probably because I'm not an expert in anything, but I like to learn things about everything. That's always good. (laughs) Um, But it's I feel like we have to start shifting the conversation and very much like what you have laid out Harold of that standby capacity payment we should be viewing healthcare as infrastructure and we just don't do that we don't think of it in the same way we think of 
you know, fire, police, roads? What are those basic things that are necessary for a society to function? And in today's world, healthcare is one of those things. And I think if anything proved it, the pandemic did, especially for rural hospitals. It proved our value and the necessity of having rural hospitals. But I think we have to, you know, really shift the conversation and start talking about healthcare as infrastructure and to help people to understand what is the reality of not having healthcare in a community as an additional kind of motivating factor to say we have got to fix this problem mm-hmm. and to help people feel not an interest in what's happening in rural health, but a responsibility for what's happening yeah. in rural health. And unless we do that, I think it's very easy for there to be a lot of talk and no game. Yeah. Well, well Harold's a, a man after my own heart because when he talks about uh, the critical nature of reform uh, or the other side of that is what I hear at conferences across this country. Mm-hmm. And I hear even in association meetings at times is M&As are the answer, JJ. Right. M&As are the answer to your problems, mm-hmm. JJ. Even at sessions that are are, uh, are uh, masqueraded as oh my how to make your rural hospital sustainable. And then you get you there get and they're there. like, let someone buy you. And yeah. it's like, that is not really what you build no, this there to are, be. Yeah, so, so, and, it's a little and bait and switch. It is a major bait and switch. And as you know, I've spoken at Becker's and other places. And when I see a, a catchy headline of, you know, come listen to how to save rural health. And I'm eager and I listen. And here are five major health system executives sitting on the panel. I'm going, well, where's the rural guy? Where, where, right. Where's the rural guy that this impacts the most? Right. And you know what the answer is, Harold? And you know it. The answer always is, well... Congressmen and women, we can solve this problem because big health systems just need to acquire small rural health. Here's what happens, and you know this far too well, Harold. When big health systems come into rural communities like Hillsdale and others, we can look at it and see. All we have to do is go and do our homework. Those communities suffer significantly, right. not only economically, but also when you look at healthcare outcomes, they suffer as well because those big systems typically gut any services that cost hospitals money, mm-hmm. psych services, obstetric services, those type of services, which are the core for us in rural communities like ours, where there is no public transportation. There is no right. way for these patients to get to a tertiary center 50 minutes away or to get their healthcare 55 minutes away. It is the significant challenge. And so in the background, This is the biggest concern. When I do forward, and I did forward Harold's last podcast, it's almost this idea like, well, but Jay, big health systems can can bail you out. Big health systems cannot bail us out. If you're listening today, my congressional friends, understand one thing. In rural communities across America, health outcomes will be far worse than they've ever been with patients who cannot have access Mm -hmm. to health care. Number two, economies in those rural communities will suffer dramatically. We are the second and third largest employer. If that hospital closes, merges, or is acquired, the result will be devastating for those Mm -hmm. communities. That's what Mm -hmm. we're saving. Well, and I think it would be interesting to start putting the question to some of those big systems in these types of encounters of like, how would you like to have a partnership that doesn't rob the local hospital of local governance? (laughs) We would love to have your support and work together to provide care, right? What is it that happens in many of these mergers and acquisitions? What the big system simply does is it then has the small hospital piggyback on its contracts with payers yeah. and be able to then charge right. more. It's all about do the anything. covered lives. Right. 
So you don't need to be acquired to do that. You simply nope. need to have a better contract with the payers. And exactly. I think that one of the mistakes that, r- that rural hospitals make is that they don't talk to who their real customers are, who, which is the employers in the community. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. Because employers are very concerned about the fact that they're being overcharged by big systems. And they're very concerned about the monopolies that are being created. And they're looking for ways to solve that. There's a lot of advocacy now on this global budget concept. There's a new film coming out at the end of this week that's going to talk about all of the abuses that big health systems have in terms of overcharging for services and bankrupting patients and over and uh, doing unnecessary services. And their solution is to have the government regulate revenues. Um, and there's no attention in it at all to the potential downsides uh, for patients. One of the best ways that we could stop this problem of creating bigger and bigger monopolies is to say, let's actually help small hospitals and yes. small physician practices continue to operate. But I think the employers in the community who are the ones that are buying health insurance plans or maybe even paying Mm -hmm. for it themselves if they are self-insured employers need to understand what their health plans are doing to put their local health system out of business or to force it to merge. And they need to start saying, we're not going to buy insurance from a company that doesn't pay our local hospital adequately. The same thing is true for the the senior citizens in the community who may be lured by the promise of zero premiums and designer eyeglasses in their Medicare Advantage plan without realizing that the Medicare Advantage plan is then going to turn around and put their local hospital out of business. So people Mm -hmm. need to start asking. And I think rural hospitals have to help by being much more explicit about the fact that they are being underpaid and how mm-hmm. much they're being underpaid and who is underpaying them mm-hmm. so that people Absolutely. can understand. If I'm going to pick a health plan that will pay you better, I have to know who that is. Yes, you do. And I think you can make health plans compete to try to show who's actually supporting the hospital and the community in a way that they don't compete on now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I have a question, Harold. Um, you you have done a tremendous amount of work. Uh, you are proficient uh, in explaining what the payer system is all about, how reform is necessary. But but if and, and we do, we have critical access hospitals. We have small rural hospitals that listen to our podcast across the country. Today, what would you say a takeaway for them to do today? How do they start this process of awareness, education? Where do you feel? It has to begin first because we're going to empower them from this podcast and they're going to, I need to send them away with what do we do next? Yeah. What's the number one? one thing? The number one thing that rural hospitals have to do is to calculate which, how much each payer is paying them for the same services. You see all these national comparisons that show how much more private payers are paying big hospital systems. And you never see the small rural hospitals in those because they're too small. And the rural hospitals have to start doing those calculations so that people can actually see, because all of that is secret. Everybody knows what Medicare pays, but nobody Mm -hmm. knows what other payers are paying. And so, and it's not, again, it's not just a matter of how much the payment is, but how quickly the payment comes. So what is your claims denial rate from the different health plans? Well, how long does your, do you have accounts receivable waiting to be paid and, and how much is that causing cash flow problems? Big systems don't have to worry about cash flow problems. No. Small systems do. But if those things aren't documented, you can't find on any hospital 
website or financial statement, any of that information. And so it enables health plans to get away with those kinds of behaviors. There's a lot of attention right now in Washington about prior authorization and about Medicare Advantage and the impacts that those are having. And I think it's important for rural hospitals to get into that mix while the window of opportunity is open to say, wait a minute, one other thing that you have to be aware of is what those Medicare Advantage plans are doing to us as rural hospitals. And whenever Mm -hmm. you talk about trying to improve prior authorizations from Medicare Advantage plans and from commercial insurance plans, recognize that that has to be has to be special attention to small rural hospitals. They don't have the ability to engage in big, big, complicated electronic systems to be able to deal with that. They simply need fair treatment. So to recap, we need to be calculating our payment rates by each payer, our days and accounts receivable by each payer, and our denial rates by each payer. And it makes me think about price transparency. How about payment transparency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, that's right. And and there is there are rules for payment transparency right now, but you can't figure any of this information no, out. Right, I think right. rural hospitals need to say, not just you know to the patient, how much do we charge for a service, but to also how much are we getting paid by your insurer for this? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And to do that on an apples to apples basis. What, what I have found, and one of the ways I started getting re- recognizing the problem that rural hospitals were facing was when I tried to understand why rural hospitals were losing money, they couldn't tell me. They couldn't they didn't have the data to be able to say which service lines they were losing money on and which payers were underpaying them. And whenever we did the work to get that information, it made an impact in terms of getting, for example, the state Medicaid program who didn't realize what it was doing to pay for inadequate payment for rural health clinics and rural hospitals to try to address that. But Mm -hmm. I think that the information needs to go to state insurance commissioners. It needs to go to private employers whenever they're contracting with health plans so that they understand how important that is. And to break away from this assumption that every hospital is getting paid huge amounts of money by private insurance plans and that in many cases it's exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, there is just such a perception that, well, and, and a reality that healthcare costs continue to go up. And you always hear the story of, you know, oh, they charge me $1,000 for half of a Tylenol and, you know, all, all that kind of thing. But it doesn't mean that rural hospitals are actually getting paid. And there there is definitely this sense of healthcare is flush with cash. And I, there's probably more understanding now that that's not the case because, Healthcare systems and hospitals on all levels are struggling financially in the industry right now. But in general, that is not healthcare is not thought of as an industry that is struggling. But if you're rural, that is more of yeah. the standard. Yeah, it is. It right. is. And the assumption seems to be that if rural hospitals are losing money, it's because they're incompetently yep. managed or because yep. right. it somehow, you know, it's just it's in, they're inefficient rather yep. than the fact that they're being underpaid by people Mm -hmm. who are taking advantage of the fact that they are small. So I think that's the number one thing that rural hospitals have to do is to change that narrative. There's Mm -hmm. been entirely too much focus on what Medicare should do and not nearly enough on what the other half of the payers that rural hospitals have are doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're giving me some really good ideas of some potential uh, tools and things we could 
create to make this easier on rural hospitals to start communicating this. And hopefully our listeners as well, because this isn't just a Hillsdale Hospital issue. This is why we launched Rural Health Rising to bring these types of issues that are impacting our hospitals and rural communities across this country uh, so negatively. And so having an expert like Harold on this program, one of our favorite, uh, you know, reviewers, uh, and certainly providing us with a a, a tremendous amount of background information Mm -hmm. that we can take to Washington, which we did, if mm-hmm. you recall, and from our last podcast, or Lansing and having these discussions, right. I would encourage our listeners today, you've heard uh, Harold speak about what you can do. And it really, advocacy starts today with you and mm-hmm. having those discussions. And I would encourage you, take this podcast, forward it uh, to your board of trustees, forward this a podcast to your congressional leaders. Start having the dialogue today because Forward friends, it to your local chamber of commerce. Yes, yes. absolutely. At every level, to you can get this To the largest employers out. in your community yes. besides yourself. Yeah, and, and get, it, get it out into their hands of understanding what is at stake. And then we drive the payers. And mm-hmm. so without that push, Rachel, the number is going to continue to swell right. of the hospitals that are at risk of closing. And it is going to be a significant failure. And it's going to be a health emergency in rural communities. So, Harold, with that, thank you for joining us again today on Rural Health Rising. Uh, as one of our favorite guests, we hope to have you back here again. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure being here. You do a great job. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach, and you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. 